you ever said this dangerous phrase? There's a dangerous phrase that I catch myself saying. I'm not sure if you've said it, and it's okay if you have. It's this phrase, if only I had blank, then everything would be okay. If only I had X, then life would get better. I've said that. Maybe you've said it. If only I had a better car that doesn't squeak when I brake. If only I had a house with a backyard. If only I had that boyfriend or girlfriend. If only I got good grades. Whatever it is, then life would get better. That's a dangerous phrase, and that's a dangerous place to be because I think that we, as King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, he has this idea of chasing after the wind, grabbing after something that's not there. When we put ourselves in that position, it's dangerous because I think that we're never quite satisfied. We never quite know how to live and how to live out our purpose. It's a dangerous place to be. And it's a telltale spot that you're there. I'll tell you how is once you get that thing, there's another thing. You get that promotion. You get that house. You get that thing. And then you say it again. If only I had this. You're grasping after the air, chasing after the wind. I'm excited for Genesis chapter one today because I think as we go back to the beginning, as we look at day six of creation, it gives us something that we can hold on to. It gives us something firm that we can grab on that stops us from chasing after the wind. And that is when we realize our design and our purpose that God's given us, that's something we can hold on to. We, we don't have to chase after the wind anymore. We have something to hold. That purpose is going to be in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start out in verse 26. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to follow along with me, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Listen to this next part. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's an identity there, right? There's an identity and then there's instructions. Here's the instructions, verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. See, day six of creation is not like the others. Day one, day two, three, four, five, God says, it was good. As we read day six, something different happens. God says, it was very good. Not only that, God blesses the thing he created on day six. And not only that, God initiates and begins a relationship with day six of creation. That's humans. 
As we read day six, we should be drawn in. We should look a little closer. Why is day six different? What makes it different than what's come before? And there's one phrase, there's one word I want us to pay attention to, and that is the image of God. That's what sets it apart for us, the image of God. Nothing else in creation is made in the image of God, in a reflection of God, in the likeness of God, reflecting God's nature. It is different than what's come before. And I wish that as I was studying this week and looking at commentaries, listening to podcasts, reading probably more articles than I should have, I wish there was an explicit definition that I could open up the Bible and say, go to this page and it says, the image of God is this. Let me save you a little bit of time. It's not there. I kept looking, it's not there. And as I listened to podcasts, read books, read articles, there's different arguments, different ideas that people have of what is this image? What does that mean? Some people are in a camp where they say it's the spiritual part of who we are. It's the fact that there's a physical and non-physical part. Other people are saying it's our logic, it's our reason, it's our ability to think critically. Then there's even more people who say, no, what it means to be the image is to have power, to rule over creation. And I have the answer, which one is right? I'm just kidding. We could do a whole sermon series on the image of God. The next eight weeks could be on the image of God. But what I do think and what I have come to know is I think the image of God is yes, it is all of those things in some way. But it's all of those things specifically because why the image of God is different. And the image of God is different because there is a relationship. There is a relationship that is unique and special between God and that part of creation, between us, humanity. And that that relationship, like we talked about, there's identity and there's instructions that come out of that relationship. It is different and set apart and it's unique. We are different and set apart and unique as the rest of creation. And I know what you're thinking. I can imagine it already. You might be saying, yes, George, that sounds good, but that was in the Garden of Eden. Keep reading the next page, George. Humans mess it up. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. We're not made in the image of God anymore. That was destroyed long ago. No, we are made in the image of God. The image of God was damaged when Adam and Eve sinned, but it was not destroyed. We are still the image of God. Genesis 5 even refers to humans as the image of God after the fall. It is part of who we are. And so as we recognize that, as we realize you and I are made in the image of God, we need to realize one thing. And that's our first point today. So if you have those nifty booklets we've been waving around, or if you take notes somewhere else, grab your pen. Our first point today is going to be recognize and remember the image of God. Recognize and remember the image of God. The image of God is humans, is people created in God's image. We need to recognize that. We need to see that in each other. We need to see that in ourselves. And we need to remember that. We need to recognize and remember the image of God. With the image of God, there is a value. There is a dignity with that. There's something special. Like we just talked about, if it is not enough for you to think that the image of God is special because God blessed it, if that's not enough for you to realize that God initiates a relationship with it, and if it's not enough yet for you to realize that God says it was very good, 
There is more to the story. Look at the Bible. Read the story of God's plan of redemption, of what God does to restore the damaged image. See, what is value? What does value mean? Take it for Take it for a grain of salt. I was not an accounting major. I was not a business major. I was a theology major. But from what I've come to understand, value means what somebody is willing to pay for something. So in my own life, when I'm thinking about value, when I open up my Chase mobile banking app and I look at where my value is going, there's two places that hurt me a little bit, Chipotle and coffee. All right, when it comes to Chipotle, what value am I giving to a bowl of rice, beans, and chicken? Well, $9.45 a pop. All right, what value am I giving to a cup of coffee that is just bean water, if you think about it? $5 a time to get a nice pour over. That's the value that I've given to a cup of coffee. That's the value I've given to Chipotle. And you might be thinking, yeah, George, that's the value, but that's just what you pay for stuff. That's an economy. I know that, but value is the price you're willing to pay for something. And I have a crazier example, something that's new to me this week, a world that I've been unfamiliar with, and that's the world of sports card trading. Does anybody here collect or trade sports cards? All right, don't be offended at this next part, but it's a little crazy, all right? There's papers that have pictures of athletes on them. They probably cost 10 to 20 cents to make, And you would not believe the price that some people are willing to pay. We have one example here. This is what I've learned this week is a 1952 Mickey Mantle baseball card. I'm going to tell you that was not worth 10 or 20 cents. That card is valued at $12.5 million. It's valued at $12.5 million because that's the price that somebody was willing to pay for it in August of 2022. All right, must be nice, right? $12.5 million. So what does sports cards have to do with the image of God? Let's get back on track, back to the Bible, all right? What was the price that God was willing to pay for the image of God? What is the price, what is the value of the image of God? What was God willing to pay for that? God was willing to pay one son to restore the image of God. And I'm not just saying one son of many sons. He wasn't disposable. No, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, came and lived a life that was perfect, died the death that we deserve to die so that we can live a life we don't deserve to live. God looked at the image of God in you and in me, and he said, that is worth one Jesus Christ. That is worth one sacrifice. So if we're going to look at Genesis 1, if we're going to look at what the image of God is, you have to hang on with me and recognize the image of God is valuable because God says it's valuable. So our first point, right? We need to recognize and remember the image of God. It's in each and every one of us. It's a status that's given whether we opt into it or we don't, whether we want to be or whether we don't whether people we know, we think, should be or shouldn't be in the image of God. Every single person, whether they vote like us or not, whether they drive good or not, whether they're nice or not, every single person we meet is made in the image of God. And God would look at them and say, you are worth one Jesus Christ. I'm willing to pay that price for you. So when we live our life day to day, 
not just other people, but you. God would look at you, as I've heard agape love recently explained, he would look at you and say, I love you. I want you to be all that I've made you to be. And even if you don't, even if you fail, I love you anyway. That's the value that God sees in you. That's the value in the people we live our lives with. So there's an identity there. There's a value in the image of God. Our next point we need to look at is what does it mean from there? There's an identity, but there's also instructions. And these instructions, our next point, if you have your pen ready, click it, make sure it has ink. All right, reflect and represent the image of God. There's an identity and then there's instructions. God says he made man in his image, but then he gives instructions. Be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, rule over creation. So from there, there's instructions. We need to reflect and represent the image of God. This phrase, image of God, may not be a phrase that you use every day. It's not a phrase that I typically use every day. But in the ancient world, as I've learned this week, the image of God phrase, image of God words, would have been used in two different different contexts. One of them would be a temple, an image, an icon, or an idol, would be set up in a temple to show in this temple, we worship this God. This is who we're worshiping in this temple. Another example I saw in the ancient world of the image of God would be kings when they conquered a foreign land, when they won a battle and took over a country. They would set up an image of God or an image of themselves, an idol in that country. And so you knew who was ruling and who was reigning in that country. The king might live over here, but rule over here. And when you saw that statue, you knew that king's in charge here. That king is ruling here. So when we read the image of God as it's applied to you and to me, and we receive the instructions to be the image of God, we kind of balance, we do both of those things. We show, hey, in this place, in this space, let me reflect the God who is to be worshiped in this temple of creation or in this land that we're in, that we're living in, us as images of God, we show this is the God who rules here. God reigns over this thing called earth. And let me point you to him. Now, the idea of being a statue didn't quite resonate with me, if I'm going to be honest. So I'm guessing it didn't quite resonate with you. There is something that stuck with me this week, is the idea of a reflection pointing to God or a 45-degree mirror. If you can imagine a mirror that's set right at 45 degrees so that you can reflect what's horizontal to what's vertical and vice versa, what's vertical to what's horizontal. A two-way mirror that God, as we did this morning as creation, we get to reflect creation, the horizontal to God and worship him as we did this morning. But then inversely, we get to reflect God, his care, his love, his dominion over creation. And what does that look like practically? What does that mean to reflect a God who is perfect, who is loving and just to creation? What does that mean? I think that would look like showing love to the unlovable, reflecting that from God, showing healing to people that are hurting, redeeming trust to people who have been violated. What does that look like? It means bringing peace when there would be no peace, reflecting God into creation. And that's what we do, right? We do that perfectly. No, we don't. 
as we receive the instructions to reflect, God, there's something that happens. If you've lived a little bit, if you've turned on the news, if you've been on Instagram or even worse, X, you would know we are not good rulers. We are not good at fulfilling that purpose. We're not good at doing that thing that we've been made to do. Somehow, some way, that mirror that should be at 45 degrees, that should be reflecting the horizontal, vertical to horizontal, and somehow, some way, that mirror starts to look a little bit more 90 degrees, and we start reflecting and representing the created. We start reflecting other things, the created instead of the creator. We start reflecting other things instead of the thing that we were made to create. And why do we do that? Why does that happen? You could say it's amago amnesia. We forget about the image of God, but we forget it. And I think when we forget it, we start to counterfeit it. We start to show other ways. We're made to worship. We want to worship. And we start to find other things to worship. But when we do that, when we're reflecting the horizontal, when we're reflecting created things, we lose our purpose. We start grasping after the air. We start chasing after the wind. We're not satisfied. We're disappointed. We're discouraged. And we're defeated because we're not living how God has made us to live. We're not reflecting and representing the image of God. The scary part of that to me if we can stay on this 45 degree mirror for a little bit, remember my hand is a mirror right here, okay? Imagine with me. If we can stick with that, the scary part is that it's not always a sudden shift. It's not always suddenly that I go from worshiping God to worshiping things. No, what I've noticed and what I've seen in my own life, what I've noticed and seen in other people's lives is that shift can happen subtly. And I'll tell you something, subtlety scares me. And if I could be bold, I think that subtlety should scare you too. Because day by day, it may seem like nothing changes. And you look back and everything is different. I came across an example of the scariness of subtlety. If you're doubting me right now, if you think, George, subtlety should not be scary. I want to show you a picture a picture that may be scary. It's a man named Paul. He's called the guy who turned blue. All right, let's see. I think we have it. This guy, you can Google it later, the man who turned blue. And whether you'd believe it or not, the man on the left is the man on the right. Those are the same people. He's the man who turned blue. I know not everything on the internet is true, but from what I can tell, this is He was even on Oprah, okay? So it's gotta be true. But as the story goes, Paul had a friend who he felt bad for. His friend was suffering from petroleum poisoning. And that friend was having side effects that were less than desirable. And Paul wanted to help his friend so badly. So Paul found an advertisement somewhere for a solution, like a silver colloidal solution And he read that it would help relieve the side effects of the petroleum poisoning. So Paul got this solution. He went over to his friend and said, I found the solution for you. He drank it with him and Paul wanted to be a good friend. In solidarity, they drank this solution together. Okay. His friend got better from the petroleum poisoning. 
Don't know how or why, but Paul had some weird skin defects on his arms. And when he woke up the next morning, his skin was starting to look better. And he thought, hey, it must have been that silver stuff. So he continued every single day to drink one cup of the silver solution. Every day, drink another cup, day by day, for 90 days. Three months drinking the silver solution. And so slowly, so subtly, his skin started to turn blue. But the scary part about it is it happened so slowly, so subtly, that he didn't notice. And it was not until his friend came back over to visit to check in on Paul. And he came in and said, Paul, what is wrong with you? I said, what do you mean what's wrong with me? I feel fine. I've been drinking this stuff. He says, no, Paul, you've turned blue. Paul did not believe his friend. It was not until his friend grabbed him, brought him in front of a mirror and said, look at me. Now look at you. You've turned blue. Then Paul finally believed him. Okay. Unfortunately, it's actually a permanent condition that Paul has to live with. I think as we look at Genesis 1, as we go back to the beginning, this may be an opportunity for you and for I to look in the mirror. It might be a chance for you and me to look in the mirror and to realize we've started to turn blue. And I can't stand up here. I don't think anybody could stand up here and say, this is what you should look like. We've got it figured out. Because in some way, we've all turned blue. We're all different shades of blue. We've all slowly but surely, subtly lost our original design. We've started to reflect things that were created, things that were never made to be worshipped, that are taking our time, our energy, and our attention. We're grasping for air. We're stuck with different hurts, different habits, different hangups because of it. And we have turned blue. But the good news is, as we stand in the mirror, as we look ahead, we do have a better example. We do have a friend that can stand by us and say, look at you, now look at me. I'm not that person. Nobody in here is that person. But that better example, that better way is Jesus Christ. He is the image of God. Time and time again, the New Testament reminds us that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus, as he became man, God become man, shows us what it means to be the image of God. Jesus shows us what it means to rule. He shows us a better way, actually the original way of what it means to be human, what God's design was to reflect him, what it means to be the image of God. So this is our last point today. If you have your notes, double-click that pen, make sure it's still got ink. All right, our last one today is going to be repent and rule as the image of God. We get to step into our role, step into our responsibility when we look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus shows us a better way to rule. In college and young adults on Thursday nights, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. We've been calling the series, What If Jesus Was Serious? And of course, we know the answer. He was serious. But some nights when we're studying it, it's hard. 
It's hard to live the way Jesus has asked us to live. He tells us to pray for those who persecute us. He tells us to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek. That's how Jesus shows us to be human. He tells us, if you want to rule, you need to become a servant. When we look at Jesus's life and ministry, we see that he ruled through humility. He ruled through sacrificial love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a song that I've enjoyed for a long time from a band called My Epic. You can look it up. It's an older Christian rock band, but there's a song they have called Lower Still. And in this song, they poetically describe the ministry of Jesus as the son of God, ruling through humility. I want to read a few lines to you from this song as we reflect on the way Jesus ruled. The first one is a savior who entered the earth covered in dirt, laying where animals come to eat. And then our Jesus goes lower still. Later in the story, we see him kneeling and washing the feet of filthy fishermen, traders and thieves. And our savior still goes lower still. We find our Jesus with his face beaten, skin torn, stripped of clothes, and forced to crawl through the streets. And still Jesus goes lower still. He hung like meat like on a criminal's tree and then was buried in the earth like a seed. Lower still. To us, to you, to me, to the average person that would look at that, you may say that looks like defeat. That looks like a failed mission. He was beaten, he was betrayed, he was buried. But as we keep reading the story, we see Jesus rose again and what we thought was defeat was actually victory. He rises again and defeats sin, Satan, and death. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus shows us that the way to be victorious, the way to rule is to be a servant. The way to rule is through humility. So what does that look like for us? If we want to stop reflecting created things, if we want to stop reflecting the horizontal, if we want to stop grasping for air, what does that look like? And I found so much encouragement and so much peace from a verse 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And it tells us that we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, little by little. Just like that shift might be subtle, I think the shift back to where we need to be might be subtle as well, little by little. Let's take a step towards reflecting our creator instead of the created things. It's not gonna happen overnight, but it'll happen slowly and gradually. I wanna close us with a little anecdote, a story that I enjoy from John chapter 14 towards the end of Jesus's ministry. He's with his disciples. He's with the guys that he's been doing life with, ministry with for three years. And as he closes out his ministry, they want to know, Jesus, where are you going? What are you doing? And Jesus tells them so clearly a verse that you may know. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. We love that verse. But Philip, one of his disciples, if you keep reading, 
was not quite satisfied with that answer. Philip goes back to Jesus right after that and says, Jesus, if you just showed us the father, that would be enough. We don't need these riddles. We don't need this puzzle. He says, Jesus, if you just showed us the father, that would be enough. And then I love Jesus's reply to Philip. He says, Philip, what do you mean? Show you the father. If you've known me, you've known the father. And I think I might be a little overwhelmed with this project of reflecting God's image and being the image of God. And I kind of this week just want to say, God, just tell us what does it mean to be the image of God? Give us that explicit definition. What does that mean to be the image of God? And something tells me that Jesus might put his arm around me just like Philip and say, buddy, George, what do you mean show you the image of God? If you've seen me, you've seen the image of God. We have the image of God available and ready to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He loves you. He wants you to become everything he's made you to be. And even if you don't, even when you fail, he will still love you. And you can reflect God's image degree by degree. Let's submit ourselves to Christ and see how we can reflect the one who made us. Let me pray for us and then welcome the band back up and then we'll have a time to enjoy communion in just a second and remember the sacrifice that Jesus showed in his perfect love. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for your your perfect example of what it means to be your image available to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it and to apply it to our lives. God, we want to reflect you. We're tired of grasping after the wind, Lord, but we want to grab on to your purpose for us. We want to reflect you. That is what we were made to do. God, we need you and we love you. Amen. Amen.